They're bad. They're boys. And occasionally, they talk about running. Yes, it's the Bad Boy Running Podcast with your hosts, Jody Rainsford and David Heller. Admit I was a clone to be messing around, but that doesn't mean that you have to leave town. So, do badders, welcome to Bad Boy Running. We like to talk about all things, not just running, but all things kind of health and fitness. And I read an article with The Guardian a few weeks ago, um, focused around our next guest, and thought it was fascinating in, in that. So much of what we do is about trying to be healthy, but actually it seems like we're constantly fighting a losing battle unless we're at the other extreme where we're just running loads and loads and loads and loads and loads. Um, and Charles's um, research, a lot of his, he, what, what he's done is, is really look at how small changes and things that aren't necessarily obvious can massively impact what we eat and the impact of that food. So I thought I'd get him on to, to help us with our overall fitness and, and the choices we make and the approaches we make towards food. So welcome to the podcast, the wonderful Charles Spence. Whee! <laughs> How you doing, Charles? Very well, thank you. Was was that was that introduction at all accurate or um, useful? <laughs> or <laughs> yeah, no, 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 not too bad, not too bad. I was a gastrophysicist as well, but uh, yeah, no, probably uh, lots of things you were mentioning about. Um, about weight management and exercise are things that uh, one deals with oneself as well. So um, I think what, I think the question is, the, the question is, how, how, how do you end up specialising in that? How early does that start as to as to what where your yeah. interest interest lies, how, how you get into it? Because I don't imagine that's the that's what a, a, a child at school says. What do you want to be? Oh, it's a gastro gastro yeah, physics gastro in or physics in. <laughs> Gastro what? On the, on, is that gastro in or no, physics no. in? <laughs> yeah, so no, no, late in life, in fact, and uh, I've, always been, I've been here in Oxford for a quarter of a century now, teaching, and always interested in the senses and application, but it wasn't until about 2000 and something that I uh, got into flavour and taste and, and what we eat. Um, kind of a bit late in the day when you think that you know, what we taste, mm. what we enjoy the flavour of is like the most multi-sensory thing we do, in fact, it's about what we have on the tongue, what we have on the nose, what we see, what we hear, the texture, all of these comes, things come together. So probably flavour is the most multisensory thing, but it's kind of the last thing that any psychologist gets to because it's just messy to give people food and, and stuff. And, uh, and maybe many people think that sort of flavour is less important, less exciting, less relevant, less than the other stuff, the, the hearing and vision and the high senses, the rational senses. And yeah, I sort of come to realise that um, flavours are yeah, really exciting, really interesting, and there's lots one can do uh, to try and sort of nudge or bias the way that we eat and what we think about what we eat. And and how how much would you say flavour is like a physical chemical um, reaction in the body, and how much is a kind of an emotional, a mental, and uh, part of it? Uh, probably a bit of both. Certainly that um, I've, I've been sort of watching during was coming out of COVID crisis currently, and uh, and uh, how much people sort of use food as a crux, as a as a as, a, as an emotional thing. Mm. 
and that and that people sort of get drawn towards nostalgia foods, comfort foods, mm. heritage brands of the, I don't know, the Soda Stream and the Angel Delight and the Frey Bentos pies of the of the, of the 1970s. Well, that's, that's kind of me uh, 40 years ago. <laughs> and so in that case, there is a very emotional component to it. Um, but at the same time, I think it's also a, 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 our brain is kind of hardwired to determine the energy content of food. That's probably what a lot of a lot of our evolution of our brain is all about. is is about foraging. It's about predicting what of the things I see around me. Which ones can I eat, and which ones are the most energy dense? And then I'm going to pay attention to the stuff like the melting cheese in a burger in an advert. Uh, that's kind of energy dense and in motion. That that really gets our brain going. And it turns out that there's nothing. In fact that our brain likes more, that it spends more of its energy on, than uh, the sight of our favourite food when we are hungry. Oh, is that right? Hmm? Really? Even is it... being whipped or, um, you know, end of a marathon pain or <laughs> actually it's the... Well, yeah, yes, well, uh, I'm not sure they've done the whipping thing, but um, certainly <laughs> gastro porn, uh, it's like a 24% increase in, and so your brain is your body's most bloodthirsty organ. Um, only a small percent of body mass but in fact you know, it consumes 24% of the blood flow and the energy of the whole organism so it's really energy intense to run and when you see the food when you're hungry that's the thing that gets it going far more than real pornography or anything else it's just food especially yeah. energy dense food especially food that you like that's what our brains have been evolved to to kind of predict to find to follow to attend to and to make sure we can catch and uh, consume no that, wonder we're all so fat. That's, <laughs> that makes perfect <laughs> sense. It's not our fault. It's our brains. <laughs> yeah, does that, does that mean you shouldn't, for example, do exams when you're deeply hungry or try and study when you're deeply hungry because you're then competing with your brain being just overloaded? I could I could think back to, to to the day when I did my, my my last exams as an undergraduate here at Oxford in 1991, and I would always go to McDonald's on the way for a uh, <laughs> for a breakfast. Uh, what was it? An egg and egg, egg McMuffin. Muffin. Egg and sausage McMuffin. <laughs> uh, fill your brain up, and then off you go. Um, so I, mean, I think I think when you see the research, it is it's sort of striking how much those 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 sensory. So I think really when. We often think that we eat when we are hungry, and yet the researcher would say it's we're often driven by external cues. It's by the sight of food, by the sight of the food advert, by the smell of the coffee, by the smell of the bread or the the subway store or something. And it's these external cues, especially those smells and sights and sounds that are associated with energy-dense food, Mm. that really capture our attention and that we can do little about. And, and so does that mean then actually a kind of a trying to, if, if people are trying to cut back on their consumption, they almost have to analyse their surroundings throughout the day and the night? Uh, I think that's true. And I, I would say that um, what I've been thinking about a lot recently is, is how we spent so much time at home during COVID, two years of lockdown in a mm-hmm. home environment. And in recent decades, the kitchen has become the living space. When mm. I was a kid growing up in Leeds, the kitchen was somewhere you never really went. It was kind of a other, and there's a fancy dining room, but you lived in the in the lounge, watched TV and stuff. And these days, that that 
kitchen living space has become the centre of a home. Mm. That's why people spend you know, half a million pounds on, on renovations of that. We live there, we work there. But that's fine. But then I think if we're spending all our time in that sort of dining food space, how many smells of food, how many sights of food are we being exposed to? And that's going to make it so much harder for us to not nibble or eat or consume or snack. Um, and then maybe we should be thinking more about it. My piece of advice would be to kind of get away from these sensory cues, try and avoid food smells, try and avoid the sight of food, put mm. your food in opaque jars behind opaque uh, uh, sort of cupboard doors. But if you can see it, if you can smell it, then your brain will automatically start thinking, hmm, maybe I am hungry. And you find it that much harder to uh, prevent yourself from, from, from eating. And is that is that kind so of the rationale behind things? behind reducing um, and the bans on, on advertising of, of, um, of food as well? Because that, you know, seeing food is obviously driving some kind of desire among children, among people as well. Is that mm-hmm. is that kind of the thinking behind that as well? Yeah. Yep. So, 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 so it's, I guess it's sort of something very powerful and sort of slightly strange going on with the food advertising. On the one hand, I think the food advertisers have figured out what are the optimal triggers for the viewer's brain. Bubbly yeah. cheese. And it is, uh, <laughs> what I call it, yolk porn. It's like melting cheese mm. oozing. That's energy-dense stuff, and it's in motion. And those are the two things that our brain can't resist. <laughs> and, then, and then if you have it from a first-person perspective, so I can... Because if, if I see an advert and it looks like you're eating the burger... That's no good to me. It's your burger. But if I, if I have the camera inside the mouth of the person eating it, then it could be me, and my brain finds it that much easier to simulate the act of eating, and then it becomes that more irresistible, make it energy-dense, make it move. And I think the, the marketeers have sort of intuitively picked up on many of these things, and hence those, uh, what it was, Marks and Spencers, the kind of the yes, oozing chocolate dessert yeah. of a few years ago. Yeah. They've nailed it, and we can't resist, I think, um, and sort of the psychology and the science is picking up behind and saying, oh, yep, yep, you got that right, you got that right. Um, and as such, we should think carefully about those things. And also, I, th- I think about the food TV, you know, that uh, that's there's kind of more food television than ever before. Mm. And again, so many, so many of us watch so many hours of that stuff, even if we don't actually end up making the things that we saw the chefs or the contestants making on TV. So what's going on? Maybe it's just the sight of energy-dense food is great. But I think, again, there it's really worrying when you see that even if you don't make the uh, cheesecake that Jamie Oliver made on his last TV show, when you analyse the kind of the energy density, it turns out to be a 15,000 calorie cheesecake he made. And that's great for keeping you addicted on, on, on TV, but it's really not the sort of thing that you should be eating. Well, isn't that cheesecake? Um, I mean, well, that is... Sounds <laughs> You know, you're trying to come. Um, I think I've had that make, cheesecake. Make a lovely salad on TV. Well, that's great. It's healthy, <laughs> but but no one's going to. Um, it's not. It's not going to be addictive for our eyes in a way. So I was going to say that. Can you can you switch so, it the other so, way around? And even if we don't make it, we see those things. But can you can you switch it the other way around? Say if we wanted um, to encourage more people to have broccoli and things like that, would would our brains just go no that 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 won't work? Or or can we like use the fresh. same triggers? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So no, so, so probably the brain is is there calculating energy density, and broccoli is just not gonna it's not gonna pass. If you moved it around the screen a bit, that would help a bit. Yeah, had dribbling cheese over the top. That would help <laughs> a bit more. Um, but ultimately, your probably brain is 
as I had enough experience of broccoli to know that that's not the thing. No matter how you dress it up, yeah. no matter how you move it, it is not an energy dense uh, 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 substance. And hence you'll switch channels and turn off. And so the, kind of the, the TV food producers are sort of forced into this thing of showing very energy dense foods. Uh, and the research uh, from the psychologist wow. shows, even if you never make that cheesecake that you saw on the TV being made, the very unhealthy one, nevertheless, when you do make something the next time, and you're thinking about what's an appropriate portion, how many calories in a slice, mm. you're biased by what you saw, and you end up consuming more calories than you otherwise would. So oh, you, wow. do you think producers actually, when they're charting the... The list of items they're making through a series, they will actually avoid unhealthy foods and, and go for things that they think will draw people in. Or, or they, they'd avoid healthy foods or, mm. or something like salad. It's going to be very hard, I think, to make salad, making a salad, good television. Because what's the point? Where's it, you know, the viewer's <laughs> brain just won't get it. There's no value in attending to that. Yeah. Much easier. To use energy dense, the 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 the, the, the fat rich, the and if it's oozing, melting, if it's yolks dribbling out of the burger, if it's cheese melting, that's even better still. And I think probably without the science, but the the, the marketeers have intuitively figured out mm. this is what works, this is what sells, and then have sort of honed in on that to make these things that are so almost you know, addictive for our brains that we can't resist the temptation and. And so, uh, and this second step of even if we don't make the thing that we saw, yeah. we are biased by it. We so really, that's normal. So, so that's really, okay. really, the only answer because our brain is so in tune with with identifying the, the sort of the energy density of those, and it literally cannot help itself, and it dedicates mm. so much energy, and our body dedicates so much energy. Literally, the only way of doing that is is just cutting all of that out completely, cutting off the stimulus of. Of seeing those images, basically going cold turkey on on food programs, on uh, that's that's like just changing the environment completely. Yes, yep. Um, I, I, and I say only half in jest that maybe Nigella should be up on the top shelf, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, because it is. I think potentially that that dangerous for us. That sort of food porn is uh, yeah, it is irresistible to our brains. It gets our brains going more than anything else, literally, and it also sets the norms in a way that's kind of dangerous for us. So how much of our um, unhealthy lifestyles and, uh, and obesity crisis can be put down to that kind of visual consumption, if you will? And would things like, say, avocado, which is a, you know, it is, is a, I think, a fruit technically, but quite quite high in fats, is, would that still be appealing because it gives you that <laughs> sensation, that mouthfeel, or is that... Would your brain go? No, 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 no. That's that's. It's that's green. It must be we bad. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yes, yes. It, it might be both of those things. Um, I think some of my Japanese colleagues have done studies showing slices of avocado to see whether the, the fat content does it, um, and whether your brain can can discriminate between good and bad fat, as it were. Um, but I wasn't paying enough attention. To <laughs> <laughs> but they, they are thinking about that. Uh, <laughs> Um, I, An avocado doesn't move, does it? It's, it's sort of mm. it's stationary. It might be it, be it might be mashed or sliced, so you'd have to really Wobble draw it. people in by putting the egg on top, yeah, and cutting the yolk and having that dribble down. And that's it's kind of it's fascinating, well, but it's kind of it's kind of sad that we're so easily tricked. 
get into it. It's just, I mean, the, when you, because um, I mean, I'm looking at kind of the list of um, companies that you have, you've like consulted for as well. I mean, are when they're creating food types and, and, and everything else, like, are they are they fully aware of the science and they're, and they're using it in order to try and, you know, market it in, in, in the right way or, or make it make it look that or is are they, are they kind of not aware of it? But like you said, they're just intuitively doing it because every, you know, they, they've split tested different ads. So, so, so maybe I make a distinction between the sort of the, the food companies creating the products and the flavours and the brands and the sort of marketeers and advertisers who are promoting whatever has been created. Yeah. Um, and I think the advertising and marketing has intuited over time what works, what really grabs the attention, moving energy dense in first-person perspective close to the viewer. Um, the food companies themselves maybe aren't so interested in that because that's not something they necessarily have to deal with. Um, so they're thinking about how to... Very often we get brought in by companies who are saying, we want to, or we were told to reduce sugar, salt, fat. But when we did it, look what our consumers said. Right. Mm. Put it back the way it was. What are you messing <laughs> with our favourite brand? Yeah. Um, so they're in a kind of catch-22 situation of what do we do in that circumstance? And that's when we kind of get brought in, not as a flavour chemist or a chef, but as a psychology and a sort of gastrophysicist to try and say, okay, how can we... Manipulate's not the right word, is it? But uh, how can mm. we modify the situation? What can we do mm. so that we can actually deliver an experience of sweetness, say, without the sugar? Yeah. And for that, we might think, okay, I remember five, eight years ago, uh, we did a study on uh, what was then cocoa chocolates that came out in England. Um, and that seems like a completely the wrong name. It's a milk chocolate truffle, mm. whereas cocoa sounds very angular. It sounds very bitter. It sounds very dark chocolate. Um, and that seems like completely the wrong name for a smooth, truffly milk chocolate. Yeah. And that was what we found in our lab studies. And in fact, the brand sort of disappeared from the shelf uh, uh, thereafter. But I think you know, the, the food companies are thinking now, they are incorporating more of the science, the psychological science. And I do see you know, people like the Unilevers of this world, they have patents around the asymmetrical lasagna, which is kind of, if, if I'm trying to, if I'm going to reduce the salt, say in a, in a, in a uh, cook at home microwave lasagna meal, then I can make your experience of saltiness, which is kind of like much more intense, if I can put all the salt in the first bite you take, or if I kind of asymmetrically there, it's uh, I put salt in the first layer of meat, nothing in the next, some salt in the next. For exactly the same amount of salt, I can get a much richer salty perception. And they have various patterns around this to say, okay, we are taking the science on board and there are tricking the ways uh, of the mind but when you taste something, you will always imagine that the first bite you're paying attention to. What is it? Is it as I expected? And mm -hmm. thereafter, you assume the rest of it's exactly the same. So if I can load all the unhealthy stuff in the first mouthful, it might be on the crust of a piece of bread, or uh, then I can drop it out of the other mouthfuls and rely on your brain's tendency to say, okay, I figured out what I'm tasting, so I can switch off now, and the rest of it's just going to taste the same. Uh, and this is happening, it's sort of inc being incorporated in products. Um, not that necessarily the food companies will, will talk about it or mm. tell you about it. Mm. It's not to their advantage to do so. Uh, and in fact, as soon as they say, we've got a product with reduced sugar, with reduced salt, with reduced fat, 
you probably couldn't tell it had any of those things before they told you about it. But as soon as they announce yeah. you've got the new reduced sugar drink, <laughs> suddenly consumers say, oh, yeah, tastes different, doesn't it? I don't like it as much. Yeah. So you can't really taste it. But if they think it's... Mm. Yeah. And, and can they kind of boiling froggers to lower salt, lower sugar, just by edging and edging and edging and edging? Like, would that work? Or is there a limit where we'd suddenly would want... It, we'd be like, this is too low in salt, this is too low in sugar? Um. That's as I think that can work, and it definitely does work. In um, sort of favourite example, will be some breakfast cereals, where over a period of decades they I call it sort of health by stealth, mm. that they have gradually reduced the salt content by maybe twenty five percent over some number of years, uh, but doing it so gradually that no consumer notices that this packet of cereal <laughs> this doesn't taste any different from the last one, and the next one doesn't taste any different from the last one, but over a period of time you can gradually decrease it. And so get, someone, and someone from a, a coma is going to be just horrified. They're going to come out, <laughs> go for their shreddies. They've been under for twenty years, and suddenly, ah, 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 I'm thinking the other way of. Um, I'm very interested in sort of future foods, and maybe we should be eating more insects. Entomophagy, and for that already, you know, uh, for I think it's jams and peanut butters, you're allowed to have as many as a hundred insect parts per bag or kilo or jar mm. without having to declare it on the label. So if, if next year we made that 110 parts <laughs> and the year after 120, we could actually encourage the population towards entomophagy without... And again, it's sort of the healthy or the... Wait, 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 wait. ...approach that uh, what, why, does what, work what, in some cases. You can have how many animal... Uh, insect parts in jam? What? Is that insect, right? 100 uh, insect parts in a, in, a, in a jar of peanut butter... Uh, without having to declare it any more than that, and you have to say okay. And how do, do you even how, how do they measure that? An because <laughs> and how big? If you've got like <laughs> no, no, I've got here at uh, home. I am. Um, so if you've Colombian got an Iraq, I come back with tarantula with these leg. big, big ass <laughs> Colombian uh, flying ants, Amazonian <laughs> yeah. flying ants, Colonus uh, omegas, uh, and for those, yep, they're pretty big things. So one pot <laughs> would be much more than a, a, a wing of something else. <laughs> But that notion of, of sort of health by stealth, I think, can really work. And, and probably for the rest of us, uh, in my own home with my parents, I guess, my sister is 10 years old and would sort of got worried about salt in food a long, long time ago when I was mm. a kid. And then you can, by gradually decreasing it, lower your liking for... So either the companies can do it externally by telling you or not that they reduce the salt in the breakfast cereals, or the increase the insect parts in, in, in peanut butter and jam and coffee. Um, or we can do it ourselves, I suppose, as a as a sort of a, a gradual strategy that we realise that we should be eating less of this. But we won't. As a, as a population, we though, we won't. Gradually though. enough, it won't be a shock. But we but we won't as a population. Well, I mean, like all of these changes, that are, are these all changes that are mandated generally by um, by government or... By regulations and, and everything, like mm-hmm. is, are people do, is anyone doing this unilaterally uh, in order to reduce that? Because it seems kind of self-defeating for a lot of companies. Do, does it? Does all? Does this change have to come from government really in order for it to happen? Um, it often does, but I don't think it has to do so. So you might, I guess, companies might figure out there's a market for this if we can mm-hmm. create the um, uh, the milk or the cow-free milk. 
Yeah. And there's like interest there at the moment. Then I can see there is a market. Can we develop a product that would meet that need, mm. consumer need? And in that case, it might not be mandated by government. It might be beneficial for the planet, but not yet mandated. And it, but it might be a strategic business decision to say, okay, can we move in that direction? And there is you know, a huge interest at the moment about these oat and coconut and all sorts mm. of milk-like things. But then how do we market them? What do we call them like? And how do we cons- convince the consumer to shift, be it through health or through price or through some other means? And and um, how does how do artificial sweeteners fit into this? Do they does that work? As because we're often told in studies that people who have diet coke, for example, end up having just as many calories in the day mm-hmm. as someone who has full fat coke. It's just they replace it with other sweeteners. Yeah. Like, is 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 can it be used in a way that is is useful for humans? Or um, I think probably not. So I think. Uh, the things you were mentioning are true as far as I've read the literature. And then, in fact, you know, if, if that sweetness that you taste, if you detach it from its meaning in terms of calories, because it could be empty artificial sweetener with no calories, or that same sweetness in your mouth could mean lots of calories, then your brain just loses its, its, its sense of what's going on. Uh, and hence, that's why I think, you know, more and more studies are coming out saying, no, these artificial sweeteners... While they were promised as the perfect solution, I'll give you the sweetness you want, but without the calories, in fact, they end up confusing the brain. And again and again, not only do those who drink the uh, artificially sweetened drinks, I mean, I suppose some of these might be naturally sweetened, like things like stevia, I guess, would be very, mm-hmm. very sweet, but I without the calories. Yeah. So it's not just it's not just the um, artificial ones that are doing it. It could be natural non-calorific sweeteners but they just confuse the brain and the brain says okay I don't know what I've just had I don't know what it means anymore and that can lead people to, to consume more and that's why I think um, again in some of the companies we're working with we're thinking about can we use sweet smells instead or sweet colours or sweet sounds to do the work because I know that if, I, if you smell something like vanilla or mm. strawberry smell or a caramel smell your brain would think that's going to taste sweet Mm. And so can you use olfactory smell sweeteners to make up for a lack of a, 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 a sort of calorific sweeteners in a drink? And maybe your brain will be able to keep those things separate and say, okay, I smelled vanilla, it smelled sweet, it tasted sweet, but not end up consuming more as a result. And that's kind of an ongoing project we have with um, with the sort of Danish uh, drinks manufacturers uh, and elsewhere. And then, And then can we do clever things like if I know that you know something like vanilla makes you think of sweet smell sweet and strawberry mm. smells sweet and caramel swirls sweet if I put those three smells together to have a caramel vanilla strawberry kind of smelling thing will that smell extra sweet because your brain's got kind of three times the cues mm. to say or does your brain just say I've no idea what that is I've never you can't really decompose it and that's kind of the, the, the research currently to say how can we optimise so does that mean, depending on the type of air freshener you use, you could be actually almost prejudicing yourself to more weight, more hunger, just because you've got some <laughs> like vanilla alpine yeah. fresh yeah, yeah. in the toilet? Or <laughs> so, so, so vanilla is kind of a really interesting one. I've just got a, a paper about to come out. I think 
the next few days or accepted the next few days about vanilla because it's, it's a really curious thing of um obviously in europe didn't exist 500 years ago and suddenly it's taken over as as you say a, an air freshener mm. as a component in perfumes but also as a key flavoring and one that we we associate with sweet despite the fact that if you've ever bitten into a, a cured vanilla pod it tastes horribly bitter mm. it's disgusting and yet somehow we associate the smell with sweetness, even though the thing itself tastes bitter. So it's a really interesting case. Um, and, and those vanilla scents in spaces, and the various store, I think Sony might have vanilla in its store scent or something. Oh, and really? others do. Really? As a component of, is that making us, we're, we're, we're smelling sweetness, does that prime us in the same way, I think, you know, when you go to the, the train station and you smell the coffee, or the bookstore and you smell the coffee from the coffee. Yeah. You weren't going to have a coffee, but you can't help but by these external cues. And that can come from the TV or it can come from scent. And so these vanilla home uh, smells. Yeah, uh, one could be so worried. I have, probably no one's done the research. They could I know, I know, if, I know if, there's a, if there's a food smell around. Mm. I know if I put out, pump out the smell of bread, then of course you buy the bread in the supermarket. If I pump out in a restaurant the smell of melon, then you're more likely to choose a fruit option, so something healthier. So definitely it can work, mm. uh, but I haven't seen anyone actually, you know, playing with that on that vanilla theme to see whether it, whether vanilla just makes you calm or whether you, you smell vanilla, you think sweet, and you say, okay, I want something, I want that uh, ice cream or or cream tart or or whatever else you associate. Does that mean you're always mm-hmm. hungry then if you're having to constantly <laughs> taste these flavours? Well, I'm certainly worried about uh, about the uh, environments in, uh, in which I am and think about. I, like everyone else, live mostly downstairs here in, 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 a, in a kitchen come living room. Uh, so how can I, you know, how can I kind of nudge myself towards better choices? Mm. And that could be, you know, through having floral, a bunch of flowers. I say it looks beautiful to the eye. But I'm more interested in its scent and how that might bias my choices. And uh, 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 just the point of, you know, a, a, a bowl of fruits that you can see and all the calorific sweets, crisps, nuts, biscuits, they're all hidden away behind a, uh, an opaque uh, uh, a cupboard door that you can't smell, you can't see. Mm. So, so why wouldn't you sort of use these, sort of, these um, sensory nudges in a way to, to bias yourself? And is the, I, I did just is, have a carrot, but uh, yeah, I is that, it, so. <laughs> is the, are, are all humans? Are all humans? Is the human brain the same everywhere in terms of its its level of um, sensitivity to sweetness and everything? Or, or are there are there regional differences between brains, or you know, or, ca- or cultural differences, or can we train ourselves to have less of a? What's the kind of variation that that you can have, if any? Okay, so there are probably both. So in a way, our brains are all the same. I think our, all of our brains combine what we see and what we smell and what we taste and use the same rules to do so. But there are cultural differences in terms of um, what we've been exposed to previously. So one of my favourite examples I was telling the students about today um, is uh, Benzalde. It's like the smell of Mr Kipling's Bakewell tarts. Yeah. Cherry almond mm, kind of scent. Yeah. And for us in the West, that's a sweet smell because we've always had it in these you know, sugar-rich desserts. Um, so we, if you combine sugar and, and benzaldehyde, this almond, cherry almond odour, we get a really ex, a rich percept. We love it. But go to Japan, and they don't have 
Mr. Kipling hasn't made it over there yet, and they don't have cherry <laughs> almond uh, uh, tarts. But what they do have is a lot of um, uh, sour and sort of uh, pickled vegetables and condiments. And there you get cherry almond with a sort of savoury or a salty taste instead. And suddenly in Japan, their brains integrate the, integrate the smell and the taste, but they combine different things. They combine the salt or the MSG, the umami taste with it, mm. the smell of, uh, of benzaldehyde. For us, it's sweet taste. and So we're all <sighs> doing the same thing, all combining the senses, but which combination works differs by culture. Um, and then probably there are also individual differences that... Um, when you look at populations within any culture, there are sweet likers, there are sweet neutral, and there are sweet dislikers like me. Sort of as you increase the sweetness of something, the sweet likers say, yeah, I like it more, 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 even better, give me more sugar. Sweet neutral, it gets better for a while, and then as you add more sugar, it's just neutral. And I'm kind of a sweet disliker. I hate ice cream and things. They just taste so sweet. And as you increase the sweetness, the sweet dislikers say, you know, I really don't like it anymore. And those three groups, sweet likers, sweet neutral, and sweet dislikers, are within uh, probably any population, probably genetically determined mm. rather than culturally uh, 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 so. Um, and is one group one group so bigger than the other? Like I'm people re- getting. I was going to say, is one group bigger than the other? Uh, or I'm going to say it's probably about about a third of each, maybe. maybe, <laughs> okay. maybe. And on top of that, of course, you've got the super tasters, the medium tasters, and the non-tasters. So some of us have. 14 times as many taste buds as little dimples on your tongue as somebody mm. else. Yeah. 14 times as much. And if you imagine if your eyes were 14 times more receptors or your ears were 14 yeah. times more sensitive, how much? How would the world seem different? But within populations, there are super tasters, non-tasters, uh, again, genetically determined. And that affects primarily our, our perception of bitterness, that those with more taste buds on their tongue find Brussels sprouts very bitter, uh, tonic water, olives and so on, coffee, they probably came to later in life. The non-tasters don't taste the bitterness. They've got less taste buds and they don't know what's going on in it. And even in my own family, my father used to force my sister, my brother and myself to eat our meat and two veg. And very often that was the Brussels sprouts because he loved them. My brother's 60-something now and he still, he refuses to eat Brussels sprouts, hates them. And when I gave him and my father and my nieces, the super taster test, a piece of paper, filter paper that has this bit of compound on. My father could taste nothing. Just a piece of paper. <laughs> my brother, my sister, my nieces, myself, okay, it's really horrible, it's really bitter. And so this long-running family dispute about why don't you eat vegetables mm. is resolved by the fact that we live in very different taste worlds. Yeah. But we never realise it. Even though you were related. We all assume that you, you and I, we all live in the same taste world, we give each other the same foods to eat. And yet it, we are different from the tongue and in sweetness liking. And hence maybe there's a, you know, that in the near future there might be more opportunity to kind of optimise or personalise or customise taste experiences for your unique palate and taste world and sweetness liking. And it's, do you know, and this is just a personal question because I've got a, a caffeine company where we do struggle with some individuals find the caffeine tones of it definitely kind of loud is is there other ways in which you can are there known ways of masking bitterness in flavors that work for um, everyone so i guess encapsulation works putting that bitter compound in something that only dissolves in your stomach rather than in your mouth 
and that's sort of using the pharmaceutical industry. Um, there's also um, a lot of stuff on sonic seasoning, which is the kind of music that changes the taste of food. So I know if I if I give you something to taste, and I play tinkling, high pitched pianos, wind chimes, flute music, things will taste sweeter to you. Mm. And if I play very low pitched, kind of very the lower the pitch. You know, Avo Part kind of doing some sort of a Estonian chant stuff. The lower the pitch, then that brings out bitterness. So probably the environments in which we are in Interesting. are so modulating it's... taste. And we don't think it should. It shouldn't do really, but it does. And now we're increasingly understanding what is the musical menu to help accentuate or suppress... So Barry White probably sour. never enjoyed a good meal in his life. <laughs> He's always ruined <laughs> And so it doesn't. We, no, that's we, interesting. We use Barry White in some of our studies, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting because, like you know, in, in some of the some of the, like you know uh, Michelin star restaurants, when they make you put the headphones on in order to you know for mm. for a particular yeah. course, you're thinking, oh, I don't know where this is, but there, there is actual real uh, meat. Yeah, what did you call it? Sonic um, seasoning. Sonic seasoning. That, seasoning. That, yes, that's Sonic lovely. Seasoning. That's lovely, uh, uh, Bannon, uh, isn't it? Sonic seasoning. Uh, and so the first place where that ever happened was at the Fat Duck restaurant in Bray from yeah. Chef Hims Blumenthal and yeah. that was based on an experiment we did here in 2007 playing, giving people oysters in uh, Science Oxford kind of, uh, gallery museum um, playing the sounds of the sea sounds or the farmyard yeah. chicken noises and showing that they enjoyed their oysters more than the sounds <laughs> of the sea and gone on and on for the last 15 years since then trying to optimise and find exactly you know bitter is not just low pitch it might be dissonant and rough and you might have this kind of instrument rather than that. Uh, and in a way that, uh, yeah, that that has people... It's kind of interesting to me because no one believes that should work. No. You might think, well, okay, the sounds of the sea and seafood, I get it. That's sort of obvious. But that piece of music should change the taste of food. That's not obvious to any of us. And that's kind of part of the fun about demonstrating it to people and, and showing that it works. And so when I'm thinking about, you know, say something like a, a, a wine... And people say, well, I opened the bottle and it didn't taste as I remembered it. So yeah, I'm going to open another bottle of wine and say, no, just try changing the lighting, mm. change the colour of the light bulb, change the music listening to. And that indeed could be enough to change mm. your experience of what you're tasting, bringing out. And we've shown in um, with 3,000 people in London at the um, Campo Viejo Colour Labs in 2014 in the South Bank um, that adding red lighting makes wine taste sweeter adding this tinkling high-pitched music makes the wine taste sweeter put those two things together and you can get a 15 to 20 percent increase in sweetness as compared to acidity um just by the music you're playing and the lighting you've got so actually majestic so, should be doing kind of localized taste booths for when you're buying wine yeah. just uh really and many, bra- and many brands are already in that space of um Offering sort of sensory apps where you go into the store and you buy your bottle, your, your your tub of ice cream, your bottle of wine, whatever it might be, and you sort of scan the label and the QR code, and then you get a download of recommendations. Here are some tracks that will bring out this taste. <laughs> oh my taste god, really? And that is happening now. Yep, that's incredible. Sort of thing, that's you know, incredible. I remember as a kid, we used to have these. Um, yeah, we used to have these uh, graphic equalizers on the hi-fi at home. Mm. And you can have the stadio, studio setting, the stadium, the church, uh, and it would sort of change the, the frequencies. 
Mm. And probably we could have like a, a, a tasty cue, which will be like a, a graphic equaliser to take your favourite music on your whatever music device you, you, you listen to and then sort of tweak the frequencies or pick the tracks at meal times that would bring out sweetness. So of all the music you like, which are the tracks that have the, the highest pitch, the most flute, the, the tinkling wind chimes, play those and maybe you could uh, uh, be happy with um, a less sweet food. Is there any type of music known to ruin taste? Known to ruin, like like heavy rock or country music or anything by (laughs) Bewitched? Like, is there... (laughs) Uh, So so, so, um, we did a study with a uh, food delivery company a few years ago. And we had like a typical, the most common takeout foods in the UK, which would be... Thai, Chinese, Indian, Japanese, Italian, uh, and they had various pieces of music, and we had uh, seven or eight hundred people sort of judging the appealingness of those typical takeout meals while listening to jazz, rock, uh, Justin Bieber, <laughs> uh, 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 and it turns out Frank Sinatra or Nina Simone were the best. They really made the to- food look uh, more appealing, whereas Justin Bieber. He was he was out. He was he was the worst choice you could have. <laughs> Don't eat you your takeaway take to meal. Justin Bieber. That's the key, David. You're gonna have to throw away yeah. your CDs. You have to wonder. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, because you have to wonder whether that is the music style of Justin Bieber or whether the association of the artist with the individual. Because it mm-hmm. could be either. It could be that if yeah, um, yeah. if yeah, Frank yeah. was singing Justin's tunes, that suddenly. It would switch, or yeah. So this is, this is the more experiments to be done, which we, which we like. Um, and I guess in the in the lab studies, and we, we had like a this is a big thing at the Science Museum in London. We had like five thousand people who came into the um, Cravings exhibition a few years ago, and we had twenty six freshly composed musical tracks from composers, producers, artists designed to evoke sweet, bitter, salty, sour, and. Mm. Uh, and from that, those tracks, you've never heard them before. So we know even if you have never heard the track mm. before, you can associate it. Mm. When it becomes a, a meaningful track to you, something that you have a resonance with, then probably as an extra layer of, of, of stuff. But I, I'm always struck by um, I've got colleagues in sort of the sound, sonic branding industry. And they say, you know, we've worked in, uh, in the kind of casinos in, in Las Vegas. And, and they say... Yeah, we have done a scientific study, but it's amazing. We're st- standing on the gantry over the food court, and you have do have the, the Thai, the Italian, the Japanese, and then queues build up for whatever reason on, on the Thai food, and you want to kind of you know move things on, and they just switch the music to play Dean Martin, and suddenly that Thai queue disappears, and everyone's queuing up for the Italian. <laughs> wow. And it's probably about it's probably about those semantic associations. Yeah. And none of us realise that's happening to us. None of us realise yeah. think that's. And when you do studies in supermarkets and you play French or German wine, as Adrian North did a few years ago in, in Leicester, when people come away from the from the till, if you play French music in the in the supermarket, seventy five percent French wine bought. If you play German umpar umpar music from a beer car, seventy five percent German music bought. When people come away from the till and say, "Why did you buy that French music, that French wine today?" Well, I was going to cook, you know, I don't know, beef bourguignon or something. So. But virtually nobody recognises mm. the impact of the environmental cues. They all think they chose 
what they purchased and why they chose it. And it's only when you do this sort of the statistics and the analysis and say, no, wow, it's amazing. Just like in the, um, in the casino, we are being influenced without realizing it. Um, and hence, obviously, the, the, the food companies, the marketers have been using this against us in a way for decades. And that was kind of the aim of um, my last book, Sense Hacking, was to say, okay, let's take all those insights mm. about how the atmosphere, the, the, the environment influences us. And let's take it out of the hands of the, of the food companies and the marketeers and say, what can we do for ourselves if we want to nudge ourselves towards eating less, delivering the perfect dinner party? And what would you say? Because be. I, I know in the article I read, it was, it was part of what it was talking about is how if you're eating with others, it, it dramatically can impact on how much you eat, the number of people you eat with. Um, and... And then what, what what are your rules be for how we should try and hack our way to health? Um, so in terms of, of eating with others, that's kind of yeah, a challenging one because the evidence from many studies says the more people at the dining table, the more you consume. Um, so probably one of the best things you ought to do is eat alone. <laughs> but if you eat alone, it's kind of lonely and boring and depressing. And, uh, and of course... So is it? Is it older people? It's it. I have no choice but to eat, live alone, mm. buy food for themselves, uh, and that leads to kind of very unhealthy food behaviours, not eating enough or, or over consuming. Um, so, how can you sort of manage that? Well, maybe I, I'm really interested, especially over COVID, is, is how people have been. I'm in this place, my friends are in that place. Do we have like a Skeeting, I call it, kind of skyping while eating. I probably should be zeeting these days or zooming while eating. <laughs> but you know, do we share meals at a distance? Mm. And what's going on in 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 places like um, Korea with this sort of mukbang trend, which is sort of millions and millions of of young Koreans and other people from Asia who live alone, work alone, eat alone, and they go home, have a meal by themselves, and they just uh, tune in on the internet to a. a, a, a a broadcast jockey who's eating alone and all you see on the screen is somebody who's sort of moderately attractive not especially so and they've got big piles of chicken wings and pasta and stuff in front of them uh, and you're eating alone by yourself and you can see this person on the screen eating alone by themselves but is that a kind of shared dining experience um, and is that what people do when you know is that the future for all of us as we increasingly live isolated solo lives and, and is it is, you know, should we be scared or, or worried? And do you know if that is that making them eat more, or is or is is that just more an observation of, of people like to not be alone? Um, so, so, so interesting for me is when you see these broadcast jockeys, they're not eating lettuce or salad. Mm. <laughs> they do have these very energy dense plates of food. So, do I get as a viewer? Do I get some pleasure, vicarious pleasure, from seeing the other person on the screen eating all that energy and stuff? Um, so can I use that as kind of a vehicle to get some of the enjoyment? In a way, I think you know, sometimes that there's a, a literature out there that says those people who look at, consume a lot of food porn on TV, some of them might have eating disorders. And, and can they get their enjoyment from the digital mm. food? Mm. And by so doing, use that as a technique to actually suppress their own consumption I'll just look at the food. That'll give me the pleasure. 
and then I won't need to eat it myself, so I, I can I can maintain my weight in sometimes unhealthy. And so, ways. if you if you were to kind of give a a little checklist of things that you think people can easily do to actually just have a bit more control mm. of the influences and and steer away mm. from dangerous. Yep situations what what would the main ones be uh number one has to be turn off the tv when you eat digital technology handheld or on screen all the research says you know depending on how entertaining the tv show is and if you've seen it before that's like a 30 percent increase so the more you focus on what you're eating the more mm. you focus on the sensations the taste the smells the textures then the sooner you are satiated you stop whereas if your attention's on the tv on your mobile device ah. you don't your brain doesn't recognise the stuff that's going in, yeah. and your brain seems to use like the number of sensations as a cue to say when to stop. Because if you wait for your stomach to feel really full, that's too way too late. Yeah. But your brain saying, okay, how many sens- food sensations have I had? And if you're distracted by the technology, you don't realise, so you consume more. Yeah. And anything, anything you can do to kind of focus on the on, on the taste helps you to be satisfied with less. I think um, you know, eat with heavy cutlery. Um, I've got my I've got my bowl of soup here. I'm not quite finished yet, but so often when we eat, we eat with the plates and the bowls on the table. We can reach down, but you know why don't we hold the bowl in our hands? Yeah. So it's kind of bowl food, but what happens when you hold the bowl is you feel the weight, and either heavy cutlery or heavy plateware mm. will make you feel more satiated. Mm. And also by having a bowl closer to your, from holding it up. I'm smelling the aromas much more, mm. so I'm getting more sensation from the food than I, than I would do uh, otherwise. Um, and wow. then it's got to be thinking, thinking about the, the, the music that's playing in the background. That's not neutral. It's not irrelevant as we feel. It really does have an impact. And am I being entrained to the musical beat? So am I eating, drinking faster if I if the music is <laughs> higher? Tempo? Um, and what could I do to? Wow, and, and, and this is probably this is probably not, this is probably not the best one. You can't quite see here. It's a, mm-hmm. a rimmed bowl, um, and the research says you can use illusions. So a rimless bowl is much better because it gives the brain the tricks the brain into thinking there's more food uh, uh, there than is actually uh, uh, the case. So a rimless bowl or a rimless bowl, yeah, rimless bowl's better. Okay. Whereas with that kind of white stuff, so um, with a big white border around this bowl, if you can kind of, sort of, kind of see, yeah, there, there's a little white space, and that makes your brain think there's less food there. Whereas if the food yeah. comes up right to the edge, even if it's the same amount of food, um, and we've done studies, you know, with, with sort of breakfast cereals, where you think in the morning you get up and you get out the bowl of uh, breakfast cereals, put it on the on the breakfast table, and then you're thinking, well, how much shall I serve myself today? Yeah. No idea. Um, but what you see on the picture on the front of the packaging, that becomes like a, a, a norm. Yeah. I see that oh, yeah. bowl on the front of the, of, of, the, of, the, of the cornflakes package, and I think that's the normal thing. So I try and imitate that. Um, and that's really worrying when you, when you realize that, you know, on average, breakfast cereals show 300% of a recommended serving suggestion. Oh, on the on the picture. The more food that's there, the more attractive it is on the on the store shelf. Wow! Right. Oh, so they're okay. all about you know trying to make it as much food as possible. It'll grab your attention. But you've got that 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 packet of breakfast cereal on the table at home, and it does. It's a norm that affects you, just like the uh, 
the, the, the uh, Jamie Oliver cheesecake on the TV that affects you and sets your your consumption norms, and that can be really dangerous. Uh, so we, we well. really need to be kind of handing out stickers of the pictures of the right size cereals and things to put on mm. our boxes, just so that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, you can sort of use this illusion if you have a bowl. So we've done studies with a breakfast cereal, and if you show the breakfast cereal on the packaging with a with a big rimmed bowl or a, a, a narrow rimmed bowl. That can kind of trick the brain into into serving itself uh, a, 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 a little bit less, and um, and this is actually this is a I shouldn't be showing you this because this is a ginormous bowl filled the whole screen. <laughs> over the decades, of course, our, our plates, our glasses, our bowls have got larger. Yeah, and when we're thinking about how much to serve, we kind of use the size of the plate, the glass, the bowl as a measure. So just simply by switching to smaller plates smaller glasses without trying we'll kind of end up finding ourselves selecting a smaller mm. a smaller amount and I think that's something like you know the, was it the restaurant um, uh, L'Entrecote in London and Paris is sort of a steak and chips restaurant um, and they will serve you on a really really tiny plate it's like a fixed menu and they give you seconds yeah but that kind of feels like a real lot of food because it's like a small plate <laughs> filled up and do you want seconds and if they'd shown exactly the same food on one big plate the first time round, it wouldn't feel half as impressive. So they are kind of you know, tricking your brain in a way that we could all potentially uh, do ourselves, I think. So basically, and, and the, the, the advice is of... turn, the, turn the TV off, hide stuff, and yep. get smaller smaller crockery. Uh, that's a really simple environmental and changes. Yeah. And heavier, yeah. heavier yeah. cutlery. Yeah. I, 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 I realise that most of the time when we choose to eat it's not because our stomach's gurgling and we're it's from an external cue it's I saw food I saw an advert mm. I smelled the food and again and again we think we're in control of when we choose to eat but in fact you can sort of analyse it and it's these external triggers so in the, in the environments we spend so much of our time which has been the home during Covid well how many food cues am I exposed to on a daily basis here and what is that doing to me and could I nudge myself in a better direction simply by switching unhealthy aromas or, or, or sights for that bowl of fruit, the bunch of flowers? And, and do you think government should be doing more to nudge and to educate on food and food science and food psychology? Um, as in general, yes. Um, I think None of us realise how much these external environmental cues affect us, really. Mm. Um, so the more we can sort of educate people, the better. But and that's part of the aim of sort of the last book, sense hacking, is is about saying, okay, if I can tell you what's going on and and show you some of the ways that the environment affects you, then maybe the next time you go to the pub or the supermarket or online shopping, you're a bit more sensitive to. Um, mm. Well, why are they playing that music? I wonder what it's doing to me. Why is the screen colour that? Um, why is that? Why is the most expensive or the most energy dense thing down by my mouse or whatever it might be? Um, so in that sense, yes. Um, but at the same time, I wonder. Yeah, well, it's also, of course, challenging to get people to to to, to change their behaviour and. I mean, might, the solution might be wearing a, 
a very tight corset or girdle that kind of compresses your stomach, I imagine. I mean, that would physically that... stop you from eating a lot. Mm. Is that, is, but we don't, we should... don't want to go that way. Should with the goal really then just to be much more mindful of when we are actually hungry? Like if if there's so many, if we are essentially all emotional eaters, and the only reason we're eating at certain times is because we either conditioned into thinking, oh, it's one o'clock, I need to eat now, or there's food around me, or I've seen food. Should should we just not really? Should we just be listening to our bodies in the sense of like, I I actually do feel hungry, my tummy's rumbling. That's when I should eat, and when it's not rumbling, think. I don't need to eat now. Is that is is that is that the way that we should be um, working? That would be sort of great, but that I suppose it's impossible for us to go through life without being exposed to all these cues. Mm. Because whenever you go to the train station to catch your train to work, or go to the bookshop to buy a new book, or walk down the high street and the subway or the KFC are pumping out the smells of the food, then we can't help but be exposed. To these triggers mm. um, and we might say okay well I'm going to ignore them but you can't really they just they just do their work um, so maybe the, the thing might be okay I have seen it there's a Jap- uh, an Israeli company that's got a, like a, a dieting aid which is um, a nose clip <laughs> take away the smell of food and what's left it's, it's really boring it's just sweet salty mm. sour bitter that's it none mm. of the meaty none of the herbal none of the creamy none of the it's just really boring and this is like, a, and they've demonstrated in a small-scale study that, in fact, wearing a nose clip, taking away the smell, does remove the pleasure of food. Um, and that sort of works. Or you get down there. Is it the Johnny Depp route? And he's got, like, a blue spectacles. And if you make food look blue, supposedly it makes it look unappealing. And there's a Japanese company, in this case, sort of selling these blue spectacles as a <laughs> dieting aid. Mm. Um, <laughs> not sure necessarily either of these... <laughs> I'd recommend, but they're out there as, as, as sort of sensory solutions. And also, to, to a certain extent, if you're that aware of what you're doing, you're doing that, you probably are going to be, like, really pressuring yourself not to eat too much. Um, uh, and, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe there are these... I'm sort of hopeful that there may be these sort of sense hacks or brain hacks that we can incorporate um, that sort of automatically affect so I think when it, when it involves volition we have to choose to or choose to abstain mm. from eating then it's maybe a lost cause mm. I, I have to try and avoid the food smells and the food but if there are these sort of automatic influences on us automatic nudges then maybe they are easier to incorporate into our daily life because we don't have to expend effort trying mm. to uh, uh, resolve any conflict. It just ideally, it just sort of nudges us in the right, mm. in the right way. And when that's combined with, you know, some of these new sort of formulations of food around, waiting all the unhealthy stuff in the first mouthful. Uh, I'm hopeful that there will be yeah, solutions coming out, both from a uh, sort of food industry perspective. But then also, as, as, as individuals, we can. Here is a science. It's out there. We can use it ourselves. It's not just something that they, the food companies can use to influence mm. us. Any one of us could change the size, change the colour, change mm. the weight of our cutlery or plate, where if we believed it made a difference. Now, you, you've mentioned your book. Was it Sensory Hacks? Sense Hacking. 
Sense Hacking. Okay. Yeah. And um, are there any other books that you'd recommend on the subject as well? Um, so I've got Gastrophysics from 2017, which is um, specifically just on food. And sort of Sense Hacking from last year is, is, is taking that to just the environment in general about, you know, the environments we, we exercise in, the environments uh, uh, we live, we work, we sleep in, and how can they be modified or uh, enhanced to hacks to improve sleep quality, work productiveness, exercise, efficacy, and so on. Um, but between the two of them, uh, a lot of tips for, um, uh, for sort of a healthier or more sustainable um, eating that, you know, that, that hopefully doesn't leave you doesn't leave you craving more because that's yeah. so often the, the problem that kind of tricks your brain into thinking I am sated I am full I've had enough and, um, and, and if, if people... it feels that way with less then you it's going to be much easier to maintain that sort of behaviour yeah absolutely and and um, and if people want to kind of follow your work or your progress or future discoveries is, is there an easy way for them to do that nope <laughs> I, 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 I don't have a mobile phone don't have Facebook don't have Instagram don't have any social media at all um, unfortunately I guess Long you just have to wait but, for uh, the next book book yeah. <laughs> but there's plenty plenty of good stuff on the uh, on those two books and uh, uh, easy to find on the internet for those who would like to ask questions or find out more amazing well thank you so much for coming on it's it's um... I mean, you, you spoke about a lot of things that we the one in the articles I've read already, and I just think it's fascinating. So um, we'll um, we'll share the links for the book in the the Facebook group. And if you do make any kind of write any new books or new discoveries in the future, then please do consider us because we'd love to hear you know all about yeah. what that is. Will do. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Charles. So different to there's so many things that I wasn't expecting in that actually, and it's it's quite weird to hear when you you feel you're relatively in control of your decisions. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, the small thing like eating with others, like the the stats that they mentioned in that was um, we consume thirty five percent more food when eating with one other person rising to 75% more when dining with three others. Just think how often you order that starter, the extra pudding. Oh, yeah, yeah, I suppose so. That's true, isn't it? Yeah, you do tend to... I don't know, there's just, yeah, there's so many things. Like, I was, you know, when they were always talking about TV advertising and, like, banning TV advertising, you're just thinking, oh, Mm. is that really going to change anything? Does it really make that much of a difference? And, like, overwhelmingly, yes, it is everything. It is, like, I didn't realise, you know, that statistic of, like, the one, the thing your brain likes more than anything else is food. And just looking at food. And it makes sense. It makes yeah. perfect sense. But it's just the fact that you can so neatly point out it's got to be first-person perspective, it's got to be energy-dense, and it's got to have movement of some kind. And that's it. That's your brain trick. Your brain that's is such work. a simple a simple wench that can be that yeah. can be won over. Actually, how hard it must be working in a Burger King, though, or... Uh... <laughs> 
because you've just got it there the whole time. I don't know. I imagine you work in a Burger King kitchen and you see it, and I imagine there's a lot going on in that kitchen that puts you off eating Burger Kings yeah. forever. Yeah, true. <laughs> but even even your route to work, it, it it probably makes sense to actually consider the shops you walk by, the adverts you walk by, and potentially take, taking different routes. Or when you go out to buy your sandwiches in you know for lunch thinking right do i walk past this shop or that shop because small things like that could really impact on how hungry you feel when you're making that purchase have you have you um read or listened to atomic habits at all no 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 okay you should you should watch because atomic habits is really it's all about there's a there's another book called the power of habit by charles duhigg and um james clear's atomic habits is it builds on that but it is much more practical it gives practical and it's all about environmental design and it's about that willpower is you know willpower and discipline um can escape you all the time and the way to do it is to design your environment Mm. so that you you maintain good habits and and i did this for a while and you know Mm. doing things like making sure that there's no bad food in the house but just something simple as you know, whenever you walk into the kitchen, the first thing that you see is a bowl of fruit and a bottle of water because you're more likely to drink the water because it's there. It you know the triggers there. You mm. don't have to don't have to do anything. Whereas then Libby Libby thinks this is ridiculous having this bottle of water and this thing in the middle of the kitchen. She keeps moving it and then it's out of my sight. And then I don't you and you know there was like a, a, a period where because these things were kind of in your line of sight, easy to get to treat them like and then when they were kind of out of sight you forgot about it and so it's just incredible like the like the kind of stuff the other thing we mentioned about the whole food porn and um how looking at pictures of food can sometimes help you um feel sated that was so true like when i i've done fasting before and sometimes when i've done fasting if i've done it for like two or three days I will then open a cookbook and go through under the auspices of this is what I will cook when I when I finish this fast. But it kind of helps to I don't know I don't know if anyone else has done fasting kind of like has looked at food because you think oh if I look at food I'm just going to end up eating it and stuff like that. But actually it was a good way of just fulfilling that need to kind of have f- food on your mind if that makes sense. Um, but it's kind of sad that all, yeah. basically all, um, all, all eating is is kind of emotional. That so so little is, is actually because you're hungry. Yeah, yeah, massively. And how I, I, how much your weight is determined by circumstances that you may be able to control, but for some people they may not be, and that's the hard thing. Some people won't have the ability to actually control everywhere they live and everywhere they interact i um, i i love i love the idea i love the idea i mean that is one of the best things i've ever heard the asymmetrical lasagna i mean that is just utterly yeah. brilliant just you know your first and it's so true it's true with everything it's like your first couple of bites of everything are the most important then after that you kind of forget what it is you're eating it's like a beer your first couple of sips of a beer incredible when you're on your ninth it doesn't mean you could be drinking like soda stream or something it doesn't matter and you know um but yeah it does that's fascinating that food companies are, are doing that and that might that kind of might be the key to to everything i wonder if you can kind of do it with um yeah, like we, I don't know if you do it with health foods. Just you know, dip a bit of broccoli in some chocolate, and your first, your first so. mouthful, your first mouthful of 
broccoli is chocolate coated and then you kind of just eat more and more of it. Or, re- or really salty or or che- more cheese, like broccoli flour, cauliflower cheese or things like that were the first ones and more. It must work. But, um, well, a bit different for your listeners because just saw the article and thought, actually, I'm sure everyone... So, do badders like their food? Especially from someone who's... Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And half of the reason why we exercise is actually so we can eat a bit more. Yeah, that's why we're ultra runners, and um, <laughs> and especially for someone like Charles, who's who's one of the leading experts in the world. So, if you've got any other recommendations of guests or subjects you'd like us to have on, then message me, David at badboyrunning.com. I'm trying to think of other episodes that are similar to this. We've not really done much to do more with food. I mean, Reno McGregor is really great to do with nutrition. Um, but we've not done much about food in general, kind of why... No, not about, like, kind of the I psychology behind of. it. No, we haven't, not really. Um, I mean, if you, if you actually want general sports nutrition, like Matt Fitzgerald's brilliant um, about that, and we, we touch it a little bit to do with DNA with Andrew Steele when he talks about how DNA actually impacts on some things to do with how we respond to food. Um, but fairly fairly untouched upon topic by us which is quite rare but uh <laughs> but yeah do better if you like this episode please do subscribe please do review us we uh, we've not had many reviews actually recently because uh, we've forgotten to ask people so please do leave us a fun one and we'll read it out if it is indeed funny anything to throw if into you wanna, the mix jd yeah yeah if you want to discuss this head over to the facebook group uh, answer three questions and we'll let you in so you can join the conversation um, I would tell you to buy some merch, but um, I've been told in no uncertain terms uh, by Lorna that the uh, merch store is closed while she's doing Run Britannia, so she doesn't want a load of orders piling up when she's away. <laughs> which, Fair enough. Which I think is brilliant. So please order loads. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks for listening, guys. We'll, um, I can't remember what else we normally say at this stage. I'm off to get a bowl of ice cream. So... Uh, <laughs> I'm off to have some jam with a load of insect legs in it. (laughs) See you (laughs) later, man. Yeah, cricket jam. See you guys. Fuck you, buddy.